This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In With Chris Hayes, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, Truth Dig Radio, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. And if you ever need to be reminded just how desperately conservatives want to be ruled by an authoritarian near-dictator, just remember what they have to say about Putin. Have you noticed the way certain prominent conservatives have been talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin? There's something a little off about it. Sure, they condemn him and they see him as a foe, the United States' biggest geopolitical foe. In fact, they're talking about a new Cold War. But underneath that condemnation, there's something, I can't quite put my finger on it, something that sounds oddly like admiration. Putin decides what he wants to do, and he does it in half a day, right? He, went, he decided he had to go to their parliament. He went to their parliament. He got permission in 15 minutes. He right. makes a decision and he executes it quickly. Then everybody reacts. That's what you call a leader. President Obama, he's got to think about it. He's got to go over it again. He's got to talk to more people about it. We're going through the whole like Syria thing again, right? That's what you call a leader. It's strange. It almost sounds as if they would make the Obama-Putin trade if they had a world leader's fantasy team. Look it. People are looking at Putin as one who wrestles bears and drills for oil. They look at our president as one who wears mom jeans and equivocates and bloviates. We are not exercising that peace through strength that only can be brought to you courtesy of the red, white, and blue. Ah, There's a reason we don't play a lot of Sarah Palin's analysis on the show. But to listen to Senator John McCain today, it's almost as if President Obama is too weak to even recognize the strength and the provocation of a president the caliber of Vladimir Putin. This president does not understand Vladimir Putin. He does not understand his ambitions. He does not understand that Vladimir Putin is an old KGB colonel bent on restoration of the Soviet, of the Russian Empire. Now, the ideological lines here don't break down in any kind of clear way. I mean, there are people on both sides of the spectrum, liberal, conservative, reactionaries and radicals, who said everything from Putin is being unfairly vilified and misunderstood to Putin is a monster. Those three examples I just played, though, they suggest an understanding of foreign policy and geopolitics in which strength is a supreme virtue and weakness is the supreme vice. And the winner is the one who exhibits the most strength. That framework is one Vladimir Putin seems to have. And it's a framework that too many prominent people on the right seem to share. U.S. weakness emboldened Russia to occupy Crimea. That's the gist of much punditry in recent days. It's a right-wing theme that seems to have transcended conservative media. For instance, informing a question Meet the Press host David Gregory posed to GOP Senator Marco Rubio. Do you agree with some of your colleagues who say it's the weakness of President Obama in the United States right now that has emboldened President Putin of Russia? 
Gregory repeated the theme several times, getting NBC political wag Chuck Todd to agree. Quote, this is not the first time with Putin. Putin acts, Obama warns. Putin acts, Obama warns. This is a pattern that he can't afford to stay in there and just continue to warn. You heard John Kerry, more warnings, close quote. Washington Post editors offered a variation on the theme, quote, The United States now faces a naked act of armed aggression in the center of Europe by a Russian regime that is signaling its intent to steamroller this U.S. president and his allies, close quote. Koki Roberts thought it was worthwhile to use her time as a political commentator on NPR to quote Senator Lindsey Graham saying, quote, We have a weak and indecisive president that invites aggression, close quote. Guardian writer Michael Cohen seemed to be responding to all of this when he offered a very different take. Quote, Shocking as it may be, sometimes countries take actions based on how they view their interests, irrespective of who the U.S. did or did not bomb. Close quote. It's telling that you had to go outside the U.S. media to hear such a viewpoint. Hillary Clinton is now equating Vladimir, uh, uh, equating Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler in some specific ways. Hillary Clinton equated recent actions by Russian President Vladimir Putin in Ukraine to Adolf Hitler's desire to protect ethnic Germans outside of Germany. So to give you some background, Vladimir Putin has been on a campaign to give Russian passports to anyone who has Russian connections, according to Hillary Clinton. The Russian leader has done this in the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea, which Hillary Clinton says is similar to what happened in Nazi Germany in the late 1930s, where Hitler resettled tens of thousands of ethnic Germans who were living in parts of Europe to Nazi Germany. And Clinton made her comments in a private event meant to benefit the Boys and Girls Club of Long Beach. And here's a quote. Now, if this sounds familiar... It's what Hitler did back in the 30s. All the Germans that were the ethnic Germans, the Germans by ancestry who were in places like then Czechoslovakia and Romania and other places, Hitler kept saying they're not being treated right. I must go and protect my people. And that's what's gotten everybody so nervous. I rarely find comparisons or equations of Hitler to anything else relevant nor enlightening and this is actually no different. And the most interesting aspect of this is that this flare-up with Russia is putting conservatives in a really weird position where they're kind of starting to defend some of Vladimir Putin's actions, but at the same time, they don't really like Russia. And it's, it's all centered around opposing people like Hillary Clinton and President Obama. Now, the comparison that Hillary Clinton makes is historically accurate, right? These are the same rationales of, quote, protecting ethnically or culturally related groups that Hitler advanced, and it's at odds with reality. The claims that ethnic Germans were being oppressed and needed the protection 
were blatant lies in the same way that Vladimir Putin's claims that Russians all over Europe are being oppressed and, and particularly in Ukraine. There is a similarity. However, in wondering what purpose this really serves, I don't really think it advances anything constructive. In other words, even if there is a historical analogy to be made there, I don't think Hillary Clinton equating Vladimir Putin or his ideals to those of Hitler will be constructive in any way, and therefore I still think it's a mistake. It's the opposite of constructive. This is basically fear-mongering. Uh, I don't know what else to call it. I mean, a lot of people make Hitler comparisons just for shock value to try and get attention. And, uh, and this one I don't think is that. There is a historical parallel here. I just still don't think it advances anything. Uh, okay, there's a historical parallel, but I'm sure you could find uh, hundreds of examples of this in other countries from other points in time. It really has nothing to do with uh, the Third Reich and, and what Adolf Hitler was ultimately trying to accomplish, right? No, there's no rule that, that makes it so that the only comparison you can make is to Hitler. And I think that it was a mistake by Hillary Clinton to do this. It's possible these comments were not meant to be public, but even still, if you're doing it at a, at a fundraising event, you have to understand that they may become public. At the same time, maybe she wasn't thinking that they were private comments. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Robert Shear, you lived in the Soviet Union for spells at a time. You've been there. You've uh, been in the post-Russia, post-Soviet Union Russia. You've been to Ukraine. And uh, what do you make of this whole situation? And also my mother lived there the first 21 years of her and, life. And you and married a Ukrainian <laughs> woman. In, in Lithuania, so yes, I've had some connection. Yeah. My, my take is uh, that this is a mess that some people benefit from, uh, and that includes uh, more warmongering American politicians. It includes Putin, who is making a big nationalist uh, push here, and uh, it disregards the interests of ordinary people in, in Ukraine uh, and in the region. And so what else is new? Uh, you know, once again, we're taking some issue out of context uh, and uh, most of the sides that are heightening the tension uh, benefit from jingoism, from the absurd suggestion that they are right and everyone else is wrong. I mean, for instance, let me just take Obama's position on this here. You know, he's the president of a country that has invaded two other 
countries uh, in the last decade. And, you know, uh, he's saying, oh, we don't invade countries. We respect boundaries. We don't risk, we, we don't change leadership. It's utter nonsense. I mean, what is the leadership of Iraq if not a, go- a government that we installed? Right. And, 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 you know. And Eugene Robinson made the point in his column that this is a president mm-hmm. who has continued to uh, uh, t- uh, launch drone strikes, uh, irrespective of sovereign boundaries uh, all over the world. Yes, and ever since 1959, when Fidel Castro came to power in Cuba, uh, liberal Democrats, as well as uh, more mongering Republicans, have taken the position that Guantanamo Base is U.S. property. We do what we want there, and I can assure you, if there ever were demonstrators anywhere near Guantanamo, Cubans uh, saying, get the U.S. out, and we want to have control, and so forth, I can assure you that would it led to one invasion without even such provocation. We had the Bay of Pigs. Uh, we've had embargo and everything, so the attempt of Cuba uh, to assert control over a, a naval base on, on its land. Russia. Uh, no, I'm saying in the oh, case of Cuba, the attempt of Cuba to say, hey, what are, what are you using Guantanamo? Now you use it, you've used it for torture, you've used it to subvert our country, you've used it as a base for, you know, uh, invading our security. And, and, you know, every American president since this thought this was absolutely normal. Uh, and, and so this self-righteousness is, is crazy. Uh, the Crimean situation is really um, convoluted because the fact is that Khrushchev, who had Ukrainian roots, uh, when in 1954, as part of a little pl- ploy about better management, I mean, they all were part of the same Soviet Union, uh, said, oh, let's put uh, Crimea under uh, Ukraine as uh, one of our um, constituent republics. And then, uh, you know, the idea of being somehow this was administratively uh, better. And then when the country divided, uh, Yeltsin was all out to lunch and didn't know what was going on. and said, okay, sure, but it's an autonomous region. And the president went into a whole big thing today that the vote in the Crimea would not matter, would be a violation of international law and Ukrainian law. There is a legal government. Well, it's false on both accounts. Uh, It seems to me if it's an autonomous region and we believe in self-determination, the people there should be able to vote on what their relation is to the rest of Ukraine, uh, what new status they want. And also this idea that somehow the government in Kiev is uh, the legitimate government. No, it was brought in by, uh, there is an elected president who was thrown out. I'm not going to defend him. He was thoroughly corrupt, but we had supported corrupt people all around the world, so there's nothing new there. But he was elected. And ironically, we get the, you know, there's a marvelous piece on on, uh, Truth Dig today by two scholars who really know uh, the area, and and they trace this uh, development. And I was very proud of that piece uh, because they show the complexity. And and the fact of the matter is, right now, the the government in power in Kiev was brought there by you know, rioting. Uh, you can say it was justified because of the conditions. You could say the police fired them, yes. Uh, but the fact is, you know, I was in a People's Park demonstration in Berkeley where someone was killed by, you know, uh, <clears throat> the National Guard, uh, and no one thought that was horrendous. We don't have the right to violently, and he wasn't being violent. They, they claimed he was throwing stones from a rooftop. James Rector was killed, and Ronald Reagan was governor and thought that was just fine. Uh, so the idea that people can demonstrate in the street and even pick up Molotov cocktails and organize into a uh, m- military unit, well, we wouldn't accept that in this country, 
are. Rulers wouldn't, certainly wouldn't. So you have a government that came to power overthrowing an elected leader. And one of the things that's really interesting, which they didn't even point out in the Truth Digger article, but strikes me as interesting, nobody seems to mention Putin did not support. Uh, Viktor Yushchenko. Yeah, he supported uh, his opponent, who, and, and, and Putin condemned throwing her into jail. So complexity is the enemy uh, of self-righteousness here, and, 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 and that's how I view the U.S. position, and I, I view the Russian position as a, a, a parallel examples of imperial hubris and, and self-righteousness. This is Truth Dig Radio. We are speaking to Robert Shear about the situation in Ukraine and Russia and Europe. And let me ask you, as someone who lived through the entirety of the Cold War uh, and studied it and wrote about it extensively, uh, this is, keeps coming up in press reports about, uh, you know, is this a new Cold War? Is this the beginnings of a new Cold War? All this back and forth between Russia and the United States. Is that fair? No, it's nonsense, because really, if you want a historical origin here, you have to go to World War II, the actual war. And and uh, the whole Russian policy after that was, you know, they had incredible, and not just Russian, but uh, the other republics, uh, suffered enormously, whether the figure is 50 million dead or what. It's an enormous. No, no, no people have ever suffered in quite that way, on that scale, with that kind of bombardment. And, and uh, you know, uh, anybody ever visiting that area knows what, what a scar this was on, on their whole psyche. And, and at that time, uh, you know, you had, unfortunately, some of the people, uh, say in the Ukraine, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, uh, who were more sympathetic uh, to the Germans coming in because they didn't like uh, communism, they didn't like their control, they, they sometimes welcomed it, some of them served uh, in concentration camps as guards, not as prisoners. Uh, so the, the, the whole analogy here, and that's why it's coming up so much if you see a swastika or something, as, uh, I'm not saying it's correct to just dismiss protest as that, but the fact of the matter is the splits uh, go back to World War II. And, uh, and and you have to understand that. And when Hillary Clinton comes out and mentions the Hitler analogy, I mean, that is so offensive uh, to that whole history. Uh, you know, the idea that somehow uh, you, you can invoke that. No, this is not, you know. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, Stalin uh, was a, a sick phenomenon that came out of, uh, really, out of this, isolation of, of the Soviet Union uh, uh, and that uh, he came out. The only thing he wanted after the victory uh, was this buffer with Germany. Well, people don't want to be a buffer. It was a stupid policy. It was an oppressive policy. The liberation of those people is valid. Then the question is, how do you re redraw the borders? And in the case of Ukraine, you actually have two Ukraines. Uh, you have people who uh, are very hostile uh, to Russia uh, on a religious basis, nationalist basis, and the practice on the ground. And then there are people who are, are far more sympathetic. And in the case of Crimea and a large part of the eastern area, uh, you know, there's a, a popular base for this. So you now have a situation where it can lead to a very bloody civil war, as we saw in the case of the old Yugoslav when it fragmented. Uh, if it is not handled right, uh, and we ignore the rights of people on both sides of it and their fears on both sides, we have a, a real mess here.
I, I, I don't want to excuse... I, I you should mention this article on TruthDig because right. it is really uh, logical, it is fair, it is balanced. Between and Iraq I, and I, Russia by actually, Evo Meinsen and Philip Kassoura. Yeah, and it's actually the best thing I've read anywhere on it. And for people who talk about unbiased journalism and where is it, this is unbiased scholarly journalism. It's really good. I don't agree with everything, but so again, I'm not the, the big expert on everything. These people know what they're talking about. They lay out all the issues, and I, I read that thing really this morning, I said, my goodness, that's the best thing I've read on the subject. So, you know, people listening to me, if they want to learn more about it, go to Truth Dig right now and, and check that out. Ukraine Between Iraq and Russia, again, by Evo Meinsen and Philip Kasula. Not to continue this entirely as a con- condemnation of just the Western influence, because obviously we feel critical, or you've been critical of Russia as well in this, but I thought an interesting point raised by William Pfaff, who's a syndicated columnist that we run on TruthDig, who lives in Europe and is a longtime observer of uh, NATO and, and these issues, you know, that this is definitely a, West, uh, the, a Western-sponsored event that Europe and the United States have actively been provoking this conflict in Ukraine uh, really since George W. Bush was president. And his question in his column was, you know, what does the U.S. really get out of this and what does Europe really get out of this? Oh, it's a terrible deal for Europe, but that has never stopped people before. From I mean, Iraq was a bad, bad deal for the U.S. It didn't stop us. Uh, what they do is inherit all of the economic problems of Ukraine, which are substantial. You have a, a heavy industry which is in the pro-Russian sector, but it's very much of the old Stalinist model. It's not really suited to the modern world very well. Uh, you have an enormous uh, debt, uh, and you're very dependent upon the, the uh, Russia supplying uh, uh, gas, uh, energy at a, a lower price, uh, and being able to carry this across to Europe. Uh, so, yeah, you're picking up an economic basket case that you now have to, to worry about feeding uh, people. But uh, n- imperialism has never really made dollars and cents. Uh, you know, uh, for Russia, the issue is really a little bit different. Uh, it's also they were willing to put $15 billion into Ukraine. I thought they were crazy. Uh, they have sent plenty of problems of their own. But, you know, nationalism is a, the author of madness. Uh, but they have a legitimate interest in Crimea and a, the warm port there. Uh, they have legal connections, certainly a stronger legal connection as the U.S. has to Guantanamo. Uh, and they have the right to be safe in, in that port and have their ships uh, be safe. And, and so their, their legal argument is, is certainly stronger for the port. But yes, there are better ways to negotiate these things with the, uh, the saber-rattling. And the main thing is you should be concerned about the well-being of the people in that area which is for good jobs and you know decent conditions to live on and real democracy and let me say something about the democracy argument it's very interesting how we throw it around we don't care that the democratically elected leader of Egypt was overthrown and you have a military junta we're happy with now with the military junta in Egypt uh, we're very partial this way uh, uh, the Soviets were blamed for invading Afghanistan well the fact is they were invited in by a government in Afghanistan that was a secular government no we supported the Mujahideen and overthrew and we had the whole uh, birth of, of this crazy, uh, you know, militancy in, in, in the Muslim world uh, as a result. Uh, the people talk about elections. So, you know, I was quite surprised. The, the so 
Soviet uh, parliament uh, unanimously uh, supported Putin. Nationalism is a very strong force. You can't blame that on, oh, they're not, they don't have elections. No, they do have elections. Putin is quite popular. Whether we like him or not, he's quite popular. And, and the reason he's popular is he's able to play the nationalism card. Then we say, oh, they have an oligarchy. They have big oil. Well, what's new? Don't we have an oligarchy? Don't we have big oil money in, in, in our country? So uh, somehow our uh, electoral system is so pure. Theirs is so tainted. Uh, yet we take the uh, Iraq election seriously <laughs> that are obviously rigged. So the whole question is what we mean by electoral responsibility. And, and now we're going to be in the position of saying the people in this, and it is an autonomous region, Crimea, they're going to say, we're going to say they can't decide their future. Uh, that's not going to fly very well. I mean, you know, some kind of accommodation. They already have, uh, an, they're already an autonomous region. And th th it will be left to them, I think. It will be very difficult for the U.N. or anyone else to say, no, you know, you can't change your circumstances. If they say we're insecure, these people are, are against us. You know, one of the things that happened in Ukraine with the overthrow of the government there was suddenly uh, Russian was not an official language. It was one of the official languages. Well, that was uh, uh, frightening to people. You know, uh, you're Russian-speaking, but your language is no longer uh, e up there or equal to us. So uh, I think... Uh, um, it will raise a lot of questions about what do we mean by self-determination. Uh, you know, we support the right, uh, we should support more the right of Kurds, uh, for instance, in Iraq or in the Middle East in general, to have uh, representation, to be able to defend their interests. Uh, and we saw what happened in Yugoslavia when you have the fragmentation of a country. Uh, you know, I remember visiting Yugoslavia, uh, you know, in the old days, and when people thought, that oh, people getting along very well. Suddenly, these competing ethnic uh, rivalries were endorsed, and uh, you have madness, uh, and, and you don't want to have that happen in Ukraine. These people have real problems enough without stoking ethnic, uh, you know, and religious uh, rivalries. Along with a bevy of right-wingers, including Dick Cheney and Paul Ryan, the March 9th Face the Nation on CBS featured retired General Jim Jones, who was once Barack Obama's national security advisor. He was asked about the impact of the Ukraine events on a, the energy equation, and Jones referred to other countries' request that the U.S. accelerate its shipments of energy to Eastern Europe. He added that, quote, our energy potential has the capacity of lowering the dependence of Europe on Russian energy and therefore affecting the economic viability of Russia for a long term, close quote. Now, the idea of using energy as a political weapon is not new, although media seem to feel differently about it depending on who does it. A recent Washington Post editorial referred to how Russian 
President Putin has extorted fealty from his neighbors by using energy as a political cudgel. While the New York Times made matter-of-fact mention of a U.S. initiative to, quote, use a new boom in American natural gas supplies as a lever against Russia, close quote. That sort of double standard is par for elite media's course, as are, unfortunately, undisclosed conflicts of interest. You see, Jones isn't just a retired general. As BuzzFeed reported, Jones is a top lobbyist for the American Petroleum Institute and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce with a focus on Keystone. In other words, he's paid by the oil and gas industry to promote their priorities, like building the Keystone XL pipeline and expanding U.S. oil and gas exploration. But that's not a fact CBS told its viewers, even as they brought him on to discuss energy policy. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. The situation in Ukraine remains tense as the standoff in the Crimean Peninsula continues. Secretary of State John Kerry met today in Paris with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, but could not convince Lavrov to meet directly with the acting Ukrainian Foreign Minister. Meanwhile, in Crimea, a senior UN envoy was threatened at gunpoint by someone in a pro-Russian crowd that demanded he leave the region. The shaken diplomat quickly headed for the airport. And on the ground, the situation remained extremely tense as Russian forces continue to occupy Ukrainian military installations and maintain their blockade of Ukrainian military ships in Crimea. In the eastern part of the country, meanwhile, scuffles broke out between pro-Russian demonstrators and those who support a united Ukraine. Back in the United States, conservatives had a message of their own. As complicated and worrying as the situation in Ukraine may be, it is also a perfect justification for everything they already believed. This is a symptom of a greater problem. It really, in many ways, started with Benghazi when our consulate was overrun and our first ambassador was killed in 30-something years in the line of duty. Three other brave Americans died and not one person's been held accountable. You're sending absolutely the wrong signal to our foes around the country. And Putin's not going to stop his aggression until he feels a sting. On the right, it seems, it always comes back to Benghazi. Even when you're talking about something that has nothing to do with Benghazi. Senator Lindsey Graham's bizarre attempt to link Benghazi and Ukraine was too much even for conservative provocateur Michelle Malkin, who tweeted, You are an embarrassment to all who truly care about Benghazi. 
But the right's effort to attach pre-existing talking points to a global crisis has gone far beyond Benghazi. The same person who coined this phrase, drill baby drill, is now using the Ukraine crisis to make her case for more drilling. And while this got all the attention, look it, people are looking at Putin as one who wrestles bears and drills for oil. They look at our president as one who wears mom jeans and equivocates and bloviates. Sarah Palin's larger point was that the crisis in Ukraine could have been avoided if America and the rest of the world would just drill. I'm right. When I talk about that inherent link between energy and security, energy and prosperity, America needs pipelines. And this position goes way beyond Sarah Palin with the most prominent voices on the right rushing to embrace the idea that fracking, natural gas exports, and the Keystone Pipeline are what it takes to stop the Ruskies. And the president wanted to strengthen his hand and help protect our allies in our region. He'd pick up his phone and use his pen uh, and have the Energy Department approve these applications for these LNG exports. Well, I think we should move forward on natural gas exports uh, very quickly. I think we should approve an LNG terminal on the East Coast to go to Europe. I think we should approve the Keystone Pipeline. One of the best ways to do it, frankly, is to let the Europeans know that we're going to export LNG to Europe. Think about what what the situation would be if more U.S. oil were out in that global market. The one thing that gives Russia leverage on their neighbors is the amount of natural gas and of oil that, that they produce and sell to, yeah. to their neighbors. Even if you ignore the fact that Republicans are just taking their pre-existing fossil fuels agenda and using Ukraine to advance it, there's a huge problem with the argument they're making. Russia's fossil fuel dominance didn't work. Russian troops aren't in Ukraine because Putin succeeded in buying off Ukraine. They're there because he failed. When the Ukrainian president kowtowed to Putin, the Ukrainian people took over and kicked him out. Because it turns out that basing your geopolitical influence on a corrupt fossil fuels industry does not produce good political and economic results. But that hasn't stopped the right from suggesting the U.S. should solve the Putin problem with a little black gold. Build Keystone, start pumping out tons of natural gas that undercut the price Russia charges for Europe, and we'll win the new Cold War the way we won the last one, by bankrupting Russia without firing a shot. The Keystone Pipeline must be approved. The more oil and natural gas the USA and Canada can produce and distribute, the weaker Russia becomes on the world stage. How do you say drill baby drill in Russian? We've, uh, we've talked quite a bit about uh, about Ukraine and um, the reasons behind uh, this intervention, um, this illegal invasion, if you will. Um, but let's just take a moment to understand 
why Vladimir Putin did what he did. And there's nobody better who seems to have uh, their sense of why this happened than the guy in North Carolina, who is South Carolina, I should say, who is facing a primary challenge uh, from the Tea Party. And, of course, I'm talking about Lindsey Graham. And the other day, uh, yesterday, at 1.42 p.m., <laughs> Senator Lindsey Graham tweeted out that, well, the following, uh, just so if you were wondering, a lot of people can talk about um, all the different ethnic Russians and Crimea as a special place in the history of Russia and uh, Ukraine is trying to make moves to get closer to the EU and there was corruption and there was a coup. All that's fine and well, but that doesn't get to the heart of the matter. Senator Lindsey Graham is, has gotten to the heart of the matter in only less than 140 characters. And I read, it started with Benghazi. <laughs> when you kill Americans and nobody pays a price, you invite this type of aggression. Hashtag Ukraine. Michael, can you take us inside the Kremlin, please? Yeah, I was looking uh, at uh, the uh, Benghazi, and uh, you see this. Obama does nothing. So we will go inside uh, Ukraine. It is like a closeted senator who looks like marmalade on the plate say. If there is no consequence for Benghazi, there will be consequence for nothing. Right-wing Obama critics complain that his foreign policy isn't muscular enough, and with the current Ukraine crisis, they say he doesn't properly understand the Cold War. But some of the conservative critics don't seem to know much about that either. Take USA Today columnist Jonah Goldberg, who wrote on March 3rd that Obama was not just eager to dismiss the Cold War. The real problem was that Obama didn't support U.S. policies during the Cold War. Goldberg's Exhibit A, no kidding, was a college paper Obama wrote in the 1980s where he discussed America's war mentality and the twisted logic of the Cold War and chided President Ronald Reagan's defense buildup, which he argued distorted national priorities instead of working for a nuclear-free world. There's precious little evidence, said Goldberg, that Obama's views have changed. Quote, in his first term, President Obama's biggest priority with Russia was to get the two countries on the path to that nuclear free world, close quote. Goldberg has a point. In his second inaugural address, Obama said he aimed to reduce nuclear arms, quote, with the ultimate goal of eliminating these weapons from the face of the earth, close quote. 
Oh, wait, sorry, that was Republican icon Ronald Reagan. So Goldberg's beef isn't with Obama, but with Ronald Reagan. Actually, the professed goal of U.S. presidents from Reagan onwards has been a nuclear-free world. It's also the goal of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which the U.S. signed 50 years ago. But Goldberg can take heart. It doesn't appear that Obama is doing anything to achieve the goal. As informed critics point out, the Obama White House is increasing spending on U.S. nuclear weapons programs. So Dick Cheney uh, is still at it. He's going on the talk shows and talking about what a tough guy he is and how he'd be tougher. In this case, he's uh, saying that it was a mistake of President Obama to take military options off the table uh, against Russia. Okay, all right. Hold on, hold on. He's going to clarify. Let's watch. I worry when we begin to address a crisis by the first thing we do is take options off the table. I don't think the administration should do that. Have they done that? In a sense, saying that no military. Um, He seems to operate that way most of the time. There are military options that don't involve putting troops on the ground in Crimea. We could go back and and reinstate the ballistic missile defense program that was taken out. It was originally going to go in Poland, Czech Republic. Obama took it out to appease Putin. We could uh, do training exercises in Poland, joint exercises. We can offer military assistance in terms of equipment, training, and so forth to the Ukrainians themselves. So, Okay, so at the very least, he's not saying let's nuke them. Wait, hold for it. <laughs> okay, but look, if you start uh, putting military options on the table, you're moving troops, you're helping the Ukrainians, you're arming them, you're doing this, etc., with physical weaponry, you're talking about moving missile, uh, missile defense system into place, well, okay, let's, you know, the Russians might also respond in kind, and then they start moving ships around, and they start arming people, and next thing you know, you're on the pathway to the worst war in world history. Now, there's a reason why you take that option off the table, because we would not all like to die. If you gave it to a vote to the American people, hey, listen, Putin's going to push us around, and he's going to take Crimea, and, you know, ah, God damn it, I can't believe he made us look like that, and he just took one of our allies' portion of their land, even though it's ethnically Russian, etc., or we're going to wind up, even with a small chance, of war with Russia. My guess is they're not going to vote for a small chance of war with Russia because they still have a lot of nuclear weapons. I don't know if you know that. Cheney's like, ah, we lose New York, Seattle, and San Antonio. But we get Crimea. (laughs) Yeah, not interested. Okay. Now, he's going to keep talking about how weak uh, President Obama is and what he did in Syria. Of course, keep in mind that this is the guy uh, who let 9-11 happen on his watch. And of course, at that time, President Bush was hardly present. Literally, he was in Crawford. Dick Cheney was, for the first six years of the Bush presidency, pretty much ran the show, especially on foreign policy, especially on national security, and allowed the biggest terrorist attack in American history to happen on his watch. But this weak-ass bitch is still going to talk about other people. Watch. 
We have uh, uh, created an image around the world, not just to the Russians, of, of weakness and indecisiveness. The Syrian situation is a classic. We've got all ready to do something. But a lot of the allies signed on at the last minute. Obama backed off. So I uh, just happened to speak to a, a couple of members of the European Parliament within the last couple of days who indicated that you know, the request for the Europeans to cooperate on sanctions is more difficult than it would have been because of what happened with respect to Syria, that in fact uh, they got ready to go mm -hmm. and at the last minute the U.S. President Obama backed off. So his, he's got a much higher mountain to climb in order to try to, to mobilize uh, European uh, governments to come on board for something other than, uh, than military. But I think there should be no doubt in anybody's mind that the United States is going to do everything we can uh, to mobilize NATO, our Western European friends and allies, to make certain that uh, Putin gets the message that uh, this kind of behavior is unacceptable and, and it won't tolerate it and he can't do it without paying a price. All right. Now, you, he speaks in Syria as if Obama was Ronald Reagan and ran like he, Reagan did in Beirut, right? No, but in Syria, here's what happened. Uh, they said, what would you like so you don't attack us? We said, well, we'd like you to turn over all of your chemical weapons. They said, deal. See, that's not running. That's winning, okay? And we get all their chemical weapons so they don't have any anymore, and they can't use them anymore. And that's without a single shot fired. As opposed to Dick Cheney, who said, Iraq, we're going to come to get you. And he fired a lot of shots. And what happened? An epic, literally historic disaster. And what did you accomplish, Dick Cheney? Not a damn thing, right? This guy thinks that, like, pushing people around and bombing them is a sign of strength. No, if you do it indiscriminately and you don't accomplish your goals, then you're an idiot. Okay, speaking of which, wait a minute. Dick Cheney, wasn't your administration in charge? When Putin came into Georgia and took a piece of Georgia? I mean, you let that happen. Charlie Rose is going to allude to that. He, he does it with some trepidation, but he does allude to it. So let's hear the answer. As you know, in Georgia, the people will make the case that mm -hmm. Russian troops remained right. uh, and that uh, it was a very different situation because we did not or were not able to respond more. Right. So That's what is true. that lesson of that? Well, the lesson in, in of your that, own I administration. Think, the lesson of that, I think, it was it came at a time sort of at the end of the Bush administration, the beginning of the Obama administration. Uh, but it was a deep concern to our friends in, in uh, Western Europe. Uh, we did take some steps uh, in terms of uh, providing assistance to to Georgia. We had ships in the region and so forth. So uh, there were steps taken, but they weren't effective in terms of driving. Uh, Putin out. And part of the problem in that case, there was a question about who actually provoked whom with respect to the George. Wait, 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 wait. First of all, I love that pause there. It, like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? It was the end of the Bush administration and the beginning of the Obama administration. How is that for an awesomely weekend? So, I mean, it happened on our watch, but Obama, it was kind of at the beginning. No, 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 no. You, it happened on your watch. You could have reacted in all the ways you want, man. You could have set up missile defense. You could have attacked Russia. You could have done, put all the military options on the table. So which one was it? Did you take the military options off the table like a bitch? Or did you use them and they were not effective? As you just said there, not effective. Which one was it, Dick? Are you weak or are you stupid? Which one is it, Dick? It happened under your watch. Oh, uh, not talking a lot are, uh, anymore, are you? And then I love that at the end. He says, well, in the case of Georgia, he basically said, they had it coming. 
This is the guy who stands up for their allies and stands so strong against what his president, by the way, called Putiput. Bush was so tough against Putin, his nickname for him was Putiput. Very tough, Dick. Very tough. Please give me more of your sage advice. Yeah, uh, Malcolm and I talk about this all the time, that Dick Cheney and all the people who are for the Iraq war, they need to shut the fuck up about foreign policy because they're wrong about everything. They said they had weapons of mass destruction. Wrong. That we agreed as liberators. Wrong. The war will pay for itself. Wrong. That they'll spread democracy like, like an oasis through the desert. Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. So shut the fuck up. I want to find out where your threshold is on something, because it's not something we've thought that much about in a while. At what point would you be willing, your choice, not the other side's, to start World War III? And when I say that, I mean the whole shebang. I mean nuclear weapons, potentially everything. In other words, what would it take to make you willing to risk essentially existential destruction? That's an important question to consider, folks, because that pledge has already been made for you if you're an American. You may not know it. Many of you Western Europeans, Canadians, we've, we've, we've all made this pledge. And we've made it for countries most Americans not only couldn't find on a map, but if you quizzed them, probably aren't even aware exist. There's been a blank check written with their name on it to be cashed as needed. The reason that check was written in the first place is the people who wrote it never thought it would be needed. I'm talking about the situation in, well, involving Russia and the Crimea and Ukraine right now, but it has ramifications for a whole bunch of other things. And folks, no matter what happens specifically in the Crimea with this current crisis, the world has changed. It's not going back to what it was because... An assumption has been challenged. In fact, an assumption has been overturned. The very same assumption that allowed people to decide it would be worth going to war, nuclear war, with potentially billions of casualties for Latvia. Now, let me say right now, I'm going to use Latvia as an example, but I don't mean it bad for the Latvians. I just want them to understand that to the rest of the world, Latvia is a small, out-of-the-way country that most people don't think about very much. It would be something they thought about a ton if the Russians invaded Latvia the way they invaded the Crimea. Because under Article 5 of the NATO Alliance Treaty, we have to treat an attack on Latvia the same as we would treat an attack on Los Angeles. And most Americans don't know that. When Vladimir Putin and Russian forces moved into the Crimea, since the last show we did, which was I suppose luckily enough called poking the bear and timing wise I think we got lucky um to point out that listen we're messing around here with forces we haven't touched in a long time 
And if the worst happens, we are going to be engaging in questions that seemed like fantasy a couple of weeks ago, folks. Like, what would you be willing to start World War III over? Because that's where you have to be willing to go if you want to push back in any sort of meaningful way on the sorts of activities we see the Russians engaging in in the Crimea. I hear a lot. You know, the debate here, I don't know where you live. Here in the United States, it's almost like we flip a switch and we're back into Cold War arguments. Believe me, there is a political class that is loving this. There is a military-industrial complex that is popping the cork on champagne bottles right now. Um, and there are a bunch of neoconservatives who, in large part, helped poke this situation into reality and into coming into being. You know, they're the ones basically behind these ideas of sending, you know, U.S. democracy NGOs and whatnot, which sound totally benign to us, but look totally like an arm of the U.S. clandestine government to people like the Russians or, or the Ukrainians in the East or things like that. They're the ones, the neoconservatives, who push those agencies and say, oh, we're just uh, promoting democracy and blah, 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 helping fund and create the structures and, you know, blah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So now we're here, and those same neocons who did that are happy to be here, too. Nothing more fun than having a Cold War paradigm to base all of your political arguments and assumptions on. Remember, folks, that's how we got neoconservatives to begin with. They are ex-Democrats who broke with the Democratic Party when the Democratic Party went all peaceful on them. Started in 68 with riots in Chicago, was culminated in 72 when the peace wing of the party and George McGovern take over. And you see the mass flight of all these neoconservatives led by people like Irving Kristol, who was the you know, guy who started the Weekly Standard and whose son, William Crystal, is one of the main people you see on all the TV shows now and whatnot. He's going to be popping the cork on some champagne now, too. All of a sudden, every argument he grew up learning how to argue with about the big bad Soviet Union is once again applicable for the big bad Russian bear, which we told you in the last show we've been poking, and now it bit, predictably. And we hear all these people in the U.S. domestic sphere saying, we have to get tough on Russia. This is a, a symptom of Obama's weak policies and blah, blah, blah. If you think this all started, folks, in the last few years, you're crazy. We've been moving NATO alliance members east ever since the Soviet Union fell. Many of you don't know this, but Ukraine was almost a NATO member by now. And if that were the case, and if the Russians actually still went into Crimea anyway... We'd be in a situation asking whether or not we were willing to go to nuclear war right now over Ukraine, a place that has been under Russian control for most of the time since the Middle Ages. Now, here's the thing. If it's up to me, everybody's free. Okay, so you're talking to the wrong guy when you want to say, listen, Dan, don't the Ukrainians or the Latvians or any of these people have a right to national sovereignty and protection from the Russians and the ability to choose their own government and all these things? Yeah, but at what cost? This is what happens, you know, in the era of nuclear weapons. I mean, before World War II started, there was a lot of talk about would you die for Danzig? Danzig was the part of what was called the Polish Corridor that kept Germany from having a direct road to its provinces in Prussia, East Prussia. And so one of the things that the Hitlerian regime wanted was access to that, a, a corridor. And um, the question was going to come over this former German city of Danzig. And people started asking, would you die for Danzig? It's sort of one of these things where if you think about it, almost nobody who's not Polish is going to make that decision themselves and go, I, I wouldn't die for Danzig. That's what they're probably going to say. But there are 
consequences if you don't. Consequences that could creep up all the way to things that matter a lot more to you than Danzig does. In other words, the old argument, one that William Crystal will be using from now on, that if you don't stop the Russians in Crimea, what sort of message are you sending to them? And by the way, for those who haven't gotten this show, you know, any time near where it came out, I remember that I have to talk to everybody now, not just the people who are listening to me now, but those who haven't listened to me yet and will listen to me in the future. The Russians went into the Crimea last week. They did it at first, pretending like they didn't do it, and by the time everybody was able to convince everybody else, yes, that's what's going on here, they were there. And now the government that the U.S. always wanted to see in Ukraine is in Ukraine, and they're complaining and they're actually trying to, you know, point to fine print in, in some various um, agreements that we helped broker concerning giving up their nuclear weapons and whatnot. One's called uh, the Budapest Memorandum. They're, they're basically saying, look, under the Budapest Memorandum, one, Russia promised not to do these kinds of things, and two, you kind of promised to help if they did. And the kind of backtracking or complete ignoring of that, you know, message is, is the sort of thing you can expect in future confrontations. Because if we actually do the things we've pledged to do, we will go to World War III over Latvia. But we won't. NATO is in a terrible situation right now. They're in an exposure moment, okay? NATO took a bunch of measures after the Soviet Union fell because they assumed they would never have to fulfill their part of the bargain. It's sort of one of those timeless messages. You know, when people say you can't really learn anything from history, well, you can learn certain things. You can learn that there's something about hubris, human overconfidence, and and assumptions that everything has changed that seem to send us down the wonderfully same well-trodden path that our forefathers were down to. The number, I mean, I'm reading on Twitter all these people saying, well, listen, there, there won't be a World War III. There'll never be a World War III. There's too much rational acting going on among these groups or these groups, and the world's too interconnected and all. You'll never see that. Folks, you cannot predict human behavior and human history based on this idea that we are going to be rational because we have proven that to be a fallacy over and over and over again. You look at the First World War, it's a wonderful mirror to look in, isn't it? Wonderful mirror, because before that war started, if you were sitting down and trying to be predictive about the whole thing, you would 95% of the time be right if you said, people in this situation aren't going to go to war. They have too much to lose. Nobody with half a brain would do this, but people don't act that way, folks. We are emotional, irrational beings, and when you throw things like fear in, and deadlines, and pressure, and, and I mean, we do things all the time that rational actors wouldn't do. So when we talk about the Third World War, let's not predicate our decisions based on what rational actors will do, because that's a great way to blunder into something nobody wants. Believe me. Even the Latvians don't want us to go to World War III to protect Latvia. That's something you need to bear in mind, folks. Because the stakes here are huge. And what NATO has proven is that we haven't thought about this very long. And that they really don't have the backing to do what they've promised to do. Because, folks, what would happen if all of a sudden, you know, by the way, Ben, talking to my producer now, um, Ben, have you noticed any discussion about this at all? The media is trying to find any little tiny crumb that they can bring into the story to, you know, fill some 24-hour coverage. You heard anything about the fact that if what the Russians are doing in Crimea were done in a bunch of other countries, we'd be in World War III right now, or we would be figuring out a loophole to get us out of it? Great question to ask some of the movers and shakers who thought it was a great idea to extend, 
you know, NATO protection, what's called Article 5 protection, right? This is the umbrella that says that all of these countries will be treated as though there are U.S. soil or British soil or French soil or German soil, you know, if attacked. Greece and Turkey, been NATO members since the 50s. Spain, since the 80s. Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, since almost the turn of the last century. And in 2004, folks, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Slovenia, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Romania... Georgia is sort of in holding pattern right now, and Ukraine was on the way to NATO membership until this last government that just ran out of the country, you know, um, precipitating this Russian move into the Crimea. Ukraine was on the way, folks. So let's ask the question now. We would be asking if Ukraine had been part of NATO, as they were on the path to doing, and Putin did what he did last week, folks. We would be trying to figure out a way out of World War III. And there would be people who would be saying, if we don't go to World War III here, we won't have any credibility at all. Nobody will believe us. I mean, that's essentially what guys like John McCain are saying. He's walking around right now saying this is all because of weakness and Obama needs to respond and da-da-da-da-da. Do you know how we responded, folks, during the hair-trigger, life-or-death Cold War era when these kinds of things happened? With presidents who were known for being hard as nails? They didn't do anything. Hungary, 1956. Soviet tanks roll in and start killing Hungarians because the Hungarians were starting to throw off, you know, the Soviet yoke in a way that, you know, today would look very much like what you saw in Ukraine. The president is Eisenhower. The vice president is Nixon. Eisenhower, of course, a general, right, in the Second World War. You know what he did? Nothing. 1968. Prague Spring. Same thing, sort of, in Czechoslovakia. The president is Lyndon Baines Johnson, busy bombing the hell out of North Vietnam and expanding the U.S. presence in South Vietnam to more than a half a million men. Do you know what he did? Nothing. Do you know why these tough-as-nails guys did nothing? Because they didn't want to risk billions of people dying. That's what's at stake here. And it's not just an exposure moment for NATO, folks. It's an exposure moment for a very unserious political class of people in the United States. This is Russ in East Texas, and uh, I was calling, we see a lot of um, talk about discrimination, and that's something that's very important to the left, and it's very important to me, too. Uh, there's one place where discrimination seems to occur, and, and I haven't seen anyone on the left really address it, and that discrimination is based on height. As, as a man of 5'3", I'm sensitive to this issue, and I feel like I've experienced some discrimination. Let me throw out a few, uh, I think these are some, they're kind of old facts, but they, it was something like 18 out of the last 20 presidential elections have been won by the taller man. 90% of CEOs are above average height for men. There's just, there's lots of varying statistics about how height gives a man privilege and, and ways to get himself promoted in this world. And uh, I'd just like to see some talk on the left about that. Thanks. Hi, Jay. It's Stacy from the Bay Area, and I've been listening with a lot of interest to the discussion about the 
uh, trans issue. And uh, there's too much to say and not enough bandwidth. So um, I'll just respond to one of the things that caught my attention. A little bit ago, a man called saying that uh, he was straight but owned the label of queer, and then he got a lot of criticism for that. And um, then another woman called in defending his owning the label queer if they don't embrace the traditional gender stereotypical behaviors, then why should someone not be called queer? She said something about a woman not shaving her legs or maybe not wearing a skirt. I don't remember exactly. But the one little piece I'll add here, I'm straight, married. I'm a cisgendered woman who doesn't embrace the traditional gender norms and haven't since I was a little girl as a tomboy. My legs are furry. I don't have a single dress in my closet. I got married in a pantsuit <laughs> to a man, and I'm definitely what you'd not call girly. But I don't identify as queer. I've never had that conversation with anyone in the queer community about this, and, and um, maybe that's something I should do. But um, no one attacks me for being a, a homo or a dyke. And uh, I don't experience the discrimination on the basis of, of my gender orientation because I'm a cisgendered, married, straight woman. So it seems to me that, you know, my habits aside, um, the only people allowed to call me queer or not queer are queer people. I'll own the label, gladly, or not gladly. I'm an ally, totally. And I'm loud about being an ally. And everybody that knows me knows that I'm straight and that I'm an ally so I don't know where that leaves me and uh, so am I queer because I'm an ally who doesn't go along with the traditional gender norms I don't know I'll, I'll leave that to the experts and I'm happy with any of it so thanks for the conversation cheers bye Hi, Jay. This is Elizabeth in Seattle. In your Heart of Darkness podcast, a segment included a woman who suggested that some people have more Neanderthal genetics than others, which makes them regressive. Furthermore, she claimed that the presence of Neanderthal genetics led to faulty neurological wiring predisposing them to anti-intellectualism, intolerance, and bullying. Aside from the fact that there is absolutely no scientific evidence that the portion of the Neanderthal genome found in humans has any effect on personality or neurological wiring, her claims sounded eerily like eugenics. I found that segment distasteful and the ideas to be dangerous. Eugenic theory has been used to justify forced sterilization, slavery, and massive slaughter. There is no such thing as a pure human or race in genetic terms. And I hope that we can refrain from calling people inferior because we don't like their politics or their personality. Thank you, Jay. I love your show, and keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. It's uh, Mick from Australia. I was just ringing about um, the Seattle City Council woman, um, 
Councilman, uh, Councilwoman Swant. I probably pronounced that wrong, but anyway. I just wanted to point out, I think I think we should applaud what she did and giving 30-something percent of her... Oh, sorry, hanging on to 30% of her salary and, and giving the rest to charity. But I wanted to point out that that's not socialist. Distributing your funds in a way that you see is appropriate, that's, that's capitalism. If she had have given her salary back to the government, and so the government could choose where that money went, that would be a socialist action, but choosing to distribute her salary to um, to unions and to the charities that choose that's that's completely capitalistic, and and um, and and charity is an, is is an essential part of capitalism and has been for for a very long time. So I think it's kind of ironic that she she says she's socialist, but but I don't see what she did as being a socialist act. Discuss. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So first of all, just a quick response on the issue of the socialist councilwoman who pledged to give away a huge portion of her salary once she was elected and you know then has done that but she's giving it away to charity, not back to the government, and so that's not really socialism, it's actually capitalism and so on. You know, I, I, I don't know this woman. I didn't read up on her story. I haven't looked up the details on this, but I'm very confident in my answer, which is that if she did genuinely want to give her money to the government, there is no legal or logistical way to do that, at least in America. You you can't write a check to the government and have them add that money to the operational budget of the government. They will have it. They will think that you're paying your taxes. They will try to give you a refund. You know, legally speaking, that money still belongs to you because you don't legally owe it to the government. And so they will never stop trying to give it back to you and it won't ever be added to the budget of the government. So you you can't you you can't have opt-in socialism where you actually give your money to the government and and have them spend it on your behalf. We just don't have a system that works that way. So, you know, whether or not she would do that if she could is another question, but as it is, giving your money to charity is is sort of the only way to give your money away. And you know, what is obvious is that this, you know, what she is doing is more symbolic than anything because the money she is giving, you know, it it'll have some sort of an impact somewhere. But what's less symbolic is how she personally is living, uh, you, you know, n- trying to read her mind just from uh, knowing the story about it. You know, the amount of money she gave away was the amount it took to bring her personally down to the average income of people in the city. And so it's to me, it's more about, uh, you know, wanting to be elected as a person who lives the same lifestyle as the people you are representing. So that's where I think the more important symbology comes in uh, because it's less symbolic, actually. <laughs> uh, secondly, I, I just want to throw out there, you know, if anyone has any, you know, insights, thoughts uh, on Ukraine, Russia, geopolitics, anything like that, I would love to hear them because, you know, frankly, there is so little really intelligent discussion going on about these sorts of things in in the media. But I know people in the audience are 
incredibly intelligent and well-informed and you know someone out there has really interesting insights on this and so i'd love to hear from you uh the number again 202-999-3991 that's going to be it for today thanks to everyone for listening thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations that is absolutely how the program survives of course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it leaving glowing reviews on itunes and stitcher and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington DC my name is Jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame How we get so trained